Hello and welcome to Movie Phone. Wait, you know Bobby, the- Bobby, 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 wrong, wrong script. Wrong? Wrong script, not Movie Phone. <coughs> Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 20 of the National Security Law Podcast. That's better. Brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I am Bobby Chesney and this is not Movie Phone. Although it would be pretty cool if it was, Bobby. I'm, I'm Steve Vladek and I used to actually, I think, do a pretty good impression. If you know the name of the movie you'd like to see, press 1. I like Kramer's version. Perhaps you'd just like to tell me the name of the movie you'd like to see. <laughs> of course, that reminds me of George's answering machine message, right? Believe it or not, George isn't at home. Please leave a message at the beep. Oh, my God. Steve, what are we doing? We just posted an episode. Did we? Uh, a couple days ago. Oh, well, so we should probably tell people when it is. Bobby, it's Thursday, May 25th. It's about 3 o'clock. Central Daylight Time here in very daylighty Austin. So you can tell it's summer, and uh, we've we've gotten our grades turned in. So, so we, we, have, what, we just had extra time on our hands. Well, apparently, we apparently the Fourth Circuit has had some extra time on its hands <laughs> because they've had a pretty busy week. Maybe we can get those guys to grade next time, dude. Yeah. Uh, hey, Judge Gregory, um, instead of writing a 79-page majority opinion in 17 days from oral argument, the whole crew, 205 total pages in in uh, the new executive order, and that's not even the more interesting opinion for our line of work. Well, let's let's give our good listeners a sense of what we're going to talk about today. So we thought we would drop this sort of not emergency because you know uh, more of a mini, mini, it's a mini, it's a mini, mini podcast, 20, the mini podcast. Um, just a, a quick little episode, just to sort of talk briefly, Bobby, about obviously the big news from today, which is the Fourth Circuit's, as you said, two hundred and five page, ten to three ruling, affirming just about for the most part, with one super technical exception that no one's going to care about. Um, the District of Maryland's nationwide injunction against the core provision of President Trump's travel ban. All right, so the president loses on this one. Big time, As bigly. You, if I recall correctly, you predicted this. I, I will say I called that, and I think I may have even called the vote. Ah, nice. So we'll have to go back and check right. tape on we're, that one. We're going to the track after um, this. But also, I mean, Bobby, I'd actually thought we sh- we'd already had reason enough to, to have a mini podcast just because of what the Fourth Circuit also ruled on Tuesday in Wikimedia Foundation versus NSA, a pretty important case challenging upstream surveillance. You know, what's funny is both of these cases have a big chunk of standing law in them. So they're they're really, for, for the Fed courts nerds out there. Uh, I don't know any Fed courts nerds. <laughs> you don't know. It, it's not the first line of my of my Twitter profile that I'm a Fed courts nerd. <laughs> um, it's, it's a big week for all those who are interested in the judicial role in national security litigation. So let's, which, which appears to be quite uh, robust, yeah, at least in Richmond, Virginia. And, and I think that our political science friends would say, well, of course, it's looking especially robust right now because the external perspective on this would tell you that when you have a decline in general trust in, in the executive branch, which is clearly a condition or the that's out there branches right now, more generally, right? You're you're going to see more judicial willingness to be independent. Which reminds me, Bobby, how many uh, how many members of the press have you chokeholded today? <laughs> well, I, or I choke, slam. choke I, I don't choke need slam. to choke them to body slam them. You yeah. know, I kind of just come up. I watched a lot of wrestling growing up. You know, and I, I kind of give them the the full lift and jump off the corner turnbuckle. Uh, maybe I should run for governor in Montana uh, or member of Congress. Yeah, was, which one was it again? Member. Of, it's, oh, it wasn't. I thought it was the governor's. No, race. no, it's the it's the statewide House district. Okay, well, whatever it was. Montana is one of those wild. you know enormous states that gets two senators and only one member of the House. I see how this works. Well. Um, so that was pretty exciting. Uh, oh, yeah, it's super exciting. And it's been really exciting to watch all of the Republican members of Congress condemn this uh, episode and call on uh, Gianforte to, to withdraw from the race. Oh, wait, no, no one's done that. 
in fairness, like what what is the obligation on? Is there an obligation on every Republican member of how Congress one? to issue a press statement? No, but how about one? Well, do they have to act collectively inside? Like which one's the guy that's got issued the statement? No, but how about one? I just want one. I just want someone to say, "Hey, dude, like that if, was not cool. You should withdraw." If it helps, I'll say it, dude. That was super not cool. You should totally withdraw. All right. Well, so, Bobby, you have my vote, but you, you already knew that. Yes. All right. So let's turn by to the— By the way, Steve, the candidates for FBI director have been sort of dropping one by one. I'm liking my odds. So I, I tweeted yesterday, and no one saw this because it did not get a lot of play, that folks who were either not in the running or withdrawing from consideration should retweet my tweet. And if you were still in the running, you should like my tweet. I thought uh, yeah, maybe that had a chance of going viral, but— just never got that moment. Crowdsourcing that selection. I think that I think the choke slam overran the news cycle. That could be. All right. So speaking of news cycles, um, why don't we start with the Fourth Circuit's ruling today, Bobby, in IRAP versus Trump. This is the travel ban case. I don't think we're going to get too far into the weeds. I think we want to take just sort of a super quick summary of what actually happened. Yeah, and I'd like the thing I'd most like to accomplish here is to convey to our listeners a sense of the the particulars, the Mandel. Uh, bona fide requirement mm-hmm. in particular. If we could get to that, I think that's a real good service. Sure. So let me do provide. the quick capsule summary, and then okay. let's talk about what are the interesting actual legal questions, right? Okay. So capsule summary. So the Fourth Circuit, Bobby, sits in Richmond, Virginia, has 15 active judges, voted to hear this case on Bonk initially. So there was no original panel decision. Um, two of the 15 active judges recused. Uh, Judge Wilkinson recused, we assume, because Jeff Wall, the acting solicitor general who argued the case, is his son-in-law. Seems like a pretty good reason. Um, and also Judge Allison Duncan recused. We think, Bobby, although we don't know, because she's on the board of trustees at Duke. Well, we know that. Um, and that Duke <laughs> fought, was on an amicus brief in this case. So 13 judges, right. 10 sided with the district court and would have affirmed the injunction. Right. So just to be clear, the district court, the, the District of Maryland had issued uh, is one of the judges who've issued a nationwide injunction right. on the exec- the second round yep. executive order on immigration. That's right. And the only real difference that the majority of the 10 judges make to the injunction is they take out Trump, right? That they say, you can't actually, um, you don't need to, and you don't, and we don't want to have to reach the messy constitutional question whether you can enjoin Trump personally, right? As opposed to enjoining all of the relevant federal agencies who would implement the ban. Well, and so, and one critical difference that in terms of what was being decided in today's big en banc Fourth Circuit decision that was not there, that was in the district court level, was the separate statutory argument for why the yeah, for why some parts of, of the injunction issued below uh, would have been proper. The, the Court of Appeals, if I understood Chief Judge Gregory right, said, you know, basically, w- whether we agreed or disagreed with that ruling, we would still have to go on to this constitutional uh, establishment clause claim. So let's only focus on that. So part of that's because, Bobby, the statutory claim, even if it's viable, and I think it actually is, reaches a, probably reaches a narrower class of plaintiffs, right? And so would require a different looking injunction. Right. And it would have been narrower in scope, potentially. Indeed. Although I will say, I mean, I so so the, the 10 judges in the majority, I mean, I think nine of them basically joined the majority opinion in full. I think only Judge Traxler had a couple of really different points. Mm-hmm. But there's an interesting – so Judge Thacker and Judge Keenan have a separate concurrence where they say, um, you know, we look at this a little bit differently, including Bobby, look at the statutory arguments a little differently. And I would really encourage folks – you're not going to read all 205 pages – Read Judge Thacker's solo concurrence because she does a couple things, Bobby, I think are interesting. First, unlike the majority, she categorically excludes President Trump's pre-inauguration comments from consideration of motive, right? That she says, I don't want to get into the messy business of whether campaign statements can and should count 
Um, and she says, even going with just what he said since January 20th, right. I still find enough. That's actually a really interesting point to, to highlight here. Let's bracket that, circle back to it after we, we explain sort of, okay, so what was, right. what is the uh, establishment clause problem that's asserted here and what why was the court uh, sure what what doctrinal test did the court bring to bear to decide at this stage because right substance and procedure are inter- intersecting in a cool and, at least cool to us and, the, re- and the reason why i mentioned judge Thacker is because then she also went on to the statutory argument right. so all right so we'll circle back so the majority bobby there are two big cases that are being thrown about by everybody here right the first is this 1972 i think supreme court case called klein deans versus mandel um, which is a case about whether the government had the power to exclude, to, to basically deny someone immigration status because he was a communist. Right, and, and I love the description. It, it basically says, uh, Chief Judge Gregory writes, uh, some university professors wanted to invite this radical communist to come give a bunch of talks, and it, you, you kind of chuckle, kind of picturing the, the, the stereotype of the, you know, us egg-headed professors trying to bring in this wild-eyed communist. The nerve. I, I'm telling you, or, or or you just think about how like, quaint that is. Who wanted to Who wanted to go see that talk? Anyway, but so so there's a lot of language in Mandel that the government and supporters of the travel ban, Bobby, have relied upon for the notion that the president's entitled to substantial leeway, discretion, and um, just sort of trust, right, when it comes to making these kinds of exclusion, non-admission decisions. Right. Maybe the simplest way to, if we're Oversimplifying, forgive us, but it basically boils down to saying that if the government can articulate a good faith reason why, what looks to be a plausible, non-religion-based reason for why it did what it did, an innocuous reason, then barring some affirmative presentation by the complaining party, that that actually is a smokescreen, that really something nefarious is going on of a religious nature, the burden's on the plaintiff in that case to, to... disproved to show that, in fact, it wasn't bona fide. Right. Basically, a, a good faith presumption, right? A presumption of regularity. Yeah, it has to be rebutted affirmatively. So the burden's on... Well, so... And Mandel doesn't even clearly say that, right? right. So, so but that's par- how Gregory interprets it. Well, partly because of the second case. So I said there were two big cases, right? And the second is this case from a couple of years ago called Kerry versus Din, um, right? Which is about something called the doctrine of consular non-reviewability. Um, and there's a concurring opinion in Kerry versus Din written by, not coincidentally, Anthony Kennedy... Um, who, you know, kind of matters here. Indeed. Um, And Kennedy went out of his way, Bobby, to say that, you know, things might be different, right, in circumstances in which there was reason to believe that the relevant immigration officers were acting in bad faith. Right. And so this is the huge question. There has not been really a lot of post-Kerry versus Din case law flushing out what it means to act in bad faith, what kind of proof suffices to show bad faith. That's right. And so part of what's going on here is these cases and trying to figure out whether the ban impermissibly discriminates on the basis of religion are trying to put meat on the bone of bad faith under Mandel and Kerry versus Dinn. Yep. And that's, that's what makes this an important doctrinal development case. And not just political. Exactly. And so, and so the majority, I think not surprisingly, right, finds first that the bona fide good faith basis for the travel ban is debatable. Right, that focusing on these six countries um, doesn't have the sort of clearest, strongest, most powerful national security justifications, Bobby, for reasons we've talked about in the past. Um, but second and most importantly, that in any event, right, if ever there was a case for bad faith, this was it. Well, and, and this is where that, that single judge concurrence is interesting because in making out the case that there's enough evidence here to put this in the bad faith. Let's back up. What is the good faith uh, secular reason put forward? The claim is these are countries of special national security concern in terms of them not doing a good enough job screening or us not having a good enough uh, visibility into who's coming out of those countries. That's why we need the pause. That's why I need to ramp up the vetting, et cetera. And if you state it like that, 
that sounds like a you know good illustration of just the sort of thing that would satisfy the Mandel. Uh, plausible right. That, right. But but the but the problem right. The, so so there are two problems. Problem number one is then why those six countries and not other countries that have similar, if not more, Bobby sorted histories, right? right? And problem number two is President Trump's own mouth. Right. So and and that's where so. To take them in reverse order, problem number two that gets all the attention is the president and, and Rudy Giuliani and other people associated with the campaign have said all these things, which strongly suggested, in fact, it's not really a national security justification so much as, as a religious animus type situation, or maybe the two are entangled in a way that may or may not be proper. Um, you have one, but not the other, of the judges saying, let's only look at uh, statements for which the president, qua president, while president is, is uh, responsible, and set aside things that may have been said during a campaign. That, to me, is a very interesting question. Can you? I, I think it's a little silly to pretend that the campaign stuff isn't relevant. If the question, the right, if, if, right? If the question is, what is this person's motive? Right, right. Not what did the president say, but what is the motivative thought of this particular human being who right. took a decision? The law has to explore that sort of thing so, all the time. So I agree with that. I mean, I want to be clear. I actually think that's correct. If it were up to me, I would, I would think anything someone says. Right, an employer. Right, how do you prove that an employer right. has, say, animus against a particular minority right. group? If it's not just the day they become the boss. No, like five years ago, the person was quoted saying the following hor- horrible thing, right. et cetera. That, yeah. so, so the, it's not dispositive. No, it's material. It's mat- In evidence law, we'd say, well, it's relevant. Does but, it prove the case? So, so there are a lot of objections to this, right? And I think what Judge Thacker was doing was saying, hey, Supreme Court, right? Some folks are going to come at you and say you shouldn't look at campaign statements, right? Well, look at me. I'm reaching the same result even yeah. without looking Clever. at the campaign statements. Clever. Now, now, so to go then back to the, the first thing you said, yeah. which is the uh, look at the details of the decision that was made. It singles out six particular states, same six that had been the subject of a related kind of action. Plus Iraq. Yeah, plus one. Or, well, Iraq removed eventually. Uh, so I'm saying the, the original list was seven. Ah, yes, exactly. So one could say like, well, you know, so why those six if you're concerned about terrorism in general? Well, it's easy to imagine, in fact, that the answer is because the experts say those are the six where it's a problem. And Indonesia, which has a very large Muslim population, doesn't present that problem. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Um, it's clear from Chief Judge Gregory's opinion that he is not persuaded that, in fact, this was a decision informed and driven by national security expertise in the first instance, which means that if the fact pattern had been otherwise, if it looked like this originated out of, say, uh, a report from the DNI or, or a report from DHS in collaboration with the DNI, say, informing the White House that, look, th- these are areas of special concern, we're having a problem with these particular countries, and the president then decided to act on that basis, I think they'd win. And I think so that I. the problem is— Even with, even with the president's statements. Even with the president's I statements— I completely agree with if that. If the national security uh, expertise were plausible of the their, executive branch was, had actually been brought to bear in the first instance— And, and if it was plausible on its face. And, and plausible on its face, then they win and they should win. I agree. That's exactly where deference should kick in. As, as you know, I've got a, a piece I wrote on national security fact effort. Virginia Law Review, 2009. Thank you, sir. One of the things I say in there is that you you obviously don't just take a rote invocation of national security uh, expertise having been deployed without actually asking, well, was it? Right. Now, the fact that the timing is president talks first, then the establishment est- or the national security right. institutions essentially weigh in. It doesn't does- help. And it doesn't help. It doesn't mean that it can't be a national security-driven thing. But now we're in. Now we're playing the game of parsing. Bobby, the Bobby you and I, you and I, totally agree on this. Yes. Right? And actually, so I think that I think that Gregory's got it right here for all these reasons. So, oh, so do I. I just think that I, I think Gregory is right. I think Thacker is perhaps the the sort of 
attempt to cert proof. Oh, that's the safety valve. It's almost like they said, hey, we need someone so here, take you. Go write separately <laughs> to flag to the to the court that this is sort of a you know, for everybody. That right. this this would come out this way even without the earlier right. statement. So so although and, it's clearly not as strong a case if you um, take everything earlier. There's out. no question I mean listen, there's less, right? There's there's clearly less. But but Bobby, nothing that the president Looking at the quantity or quality of the president's statement since January 20th doesn't affect the larger problem, which is, as you say, the lack of real heft and weight behind yeah. the national security justification. Now, here's here. what's interesting. If, if Dan Coats put in an affidavit— Dan and, Coates being the director of the national, director national intelligence. intelligence— and put in a really lengthy affidavit right. explaining in detail exactly— We have classified evidence about why these right. six countries in particular— Here we are the particular ha- right. institutional yep. sources that analyze this. Here's their assessment. Here's, here's their recommendation. Why, here's why we don't trust this intelligence service. Yep. Here's why we don't yep. trust that screening I agency. I think, for me, in that case, if you, if you could produce this, of course. That, that requires a, uh, a different result. Bob, I agree. But listen, the first version of the executive order was signed on January 27th, right? So we are coming up on four months. Um, if that de- if that evidence existed, if that declaration was possible to create, wouldn't we have yeah. it by now? So my only concern here is I want to be wary of the boy who cried wolf problem, yeah. right? You've got the boy crying wolf a couple of times, it seems like. What if the next time there is a wolf? Yeah. We've got to make sure that the doctrine doesn't open the door towards the I agree. Kind of no, problem. listen, I-, I don't know why everyone is so scared of a balancing test here, right? Where where we say we put the the neutral, non-discriminatory justifications on one side and the statements tending to uh, uh, create evidence of motive on the other. And we require some showing of your process that yeah. led you to reach those conclusions. Total, I, I mean, I don't, I, I just, I don't, I do not understand, Bobby, why this is a hard case. I mean, right, the actual balancing is tricky and nuanced and sophisticated, but the notion that those two things are, that neither is ever going to be conclusive and that they should be assessed relative to each other strikes me as completely not controversial. Well, that's, that's partly why you end up with the en banc court coming in very heavily on one side yep, of this. I think that's Not right. unanimous, but pretty heavy. So let's talk about where we go from here, right? So 10 to 3 vote, right? There are three dis- three dissents, uh, Judges Shedd. Uh, Niemeyer and King, and we might guess that maybe if he'd been able to participate, Judge Wilkinson at least. Would oh, have, I think that's. You know. I think that's. I don't think we have to guess. And um, <laughs> but so so now, Bobby, interesting things happen. So there's still the Ninth Circuit case, which is under submission, which was argued a couple days after the Fourth Circuit. And by the way, 17 days from on bank argument to 205 page opinion. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, some people have been busy. Some people have been busy. Um, so the Ninth Circuit has to rule. Um, the government, of course, doesn't have to wait for the Ninth Circuit to rule, mm-hmm. especially because I don't think the government's going to expect the Ninth Circuit then to come out expect a differently. So then and, the and they're not going to try to get this reversed on the grounds of a split. They're going to argue for the sheer importance. Right, sheer it. importance. And then the question is, does the Supreme Court, not, not will the Supreme Court eventually grant cert, Bobby, but does the Supreme Court grant a stay? Right. So yeah. so the procedure from this point is the government can go to the circuit justice for the Fourth Circuit, who's Chief Justice Roberts. Um, he would naturally refer the application to the full court. Takes five, five votes to issue a stay. Let's keep in mind, a stay in this context would actually be undo, a, would undo the, the yes, injunction. It would undo the stay, which may be a factor that might cut against getting those fines. I agree. So there's a lot of people on Twitter suggesting that the, you know it's now or never for the Supreme Court. I don't think that's true. No, I, think I could right. totally see a scenario where the court, over maybe a couple of dissents, denies a stay, but grants cert. But grants cert, absolutely. Um, and and takes, a, takes a view that, look, we're, we're basically taking our chances here. This, this rule is not in place, hasn't been in place all these many months. Right. So or, it, several it, more. if irreparable harm is supposed so part of the, the stay analysis, right, is supposed to weigh four factors, right? Likelihood of success on the merits, um, harm to the right, the irreparable harm that the applicant will suffer if right. the lower court ruling is left intact. And here both, both sides are claiming they're harmed by whichever version of the outcome. 
but I guess, and, and the, but but let's be clear, right? The status quo, which is so often the key in these cases, yeah. has been no travel ban, right? right? Since you know the since before the second version even entered into force. Right, but, but it's tricky because the government's claim is the harm to us is the status quo. We until we can change. No, the status I understand. Quo, but, but you're the, saying but the, the fact that we've had bias. the fact that we've had months of the status quo without the sky falling, right? Yeah. I think is going to hurt the government's efforts. Yep. You know, listen, it's still up to the Supreme Court. And yep. and if, you know, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kennedy want to, you know, put this all on hold, you know, want to allow the order to go into effect, so be it. I just, I could totally see a world where Tony Kennedy writes an opinion that says, hey, everybody, I don't think a stay is warranted, right. but that does not mean Absolutely. we're not taking this yeah. case. Yeah, and so I could see that happening. Um, or, or they might look at this and they might decide, you know what? Leave it. Leave it in play. You know, I... You think they'll take it? So so here's the thing. I think that if the Ninth Circuit comes out the same way, there's no split. Yeah. I think the right answer institutionally is for them to sit out, right? Yeah. Is, to, is to let the but, lower... But there's going to be so much pressure on them to step I in. I agree. And, and you know, it's not hard to imagine. This goes to our point earlier about in a, in a climate in which... And we saw this in like the 03, yep. 04, 05 yep. period. In a climate in which a lot of... Uh, for want of a better phrase, uh, there's a lot of skepticism about the uh, the White House's uh, position on things. Yep. I can well imagine that Kennedy and others decide that this is a great vehicle for sending a warning shot across the White House lawn. Hundred um, percent. And 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 let's do it ourselves. Yeah. So so that that'll be the next step on that, Bobby. Um, really quickly because we promised everyone a mini podcast. Oh and, yeah, right. And we're unminying already. <laughs> um, so the other big development, although I think now completely likely to get drowned out from the Fourth Circuit this yep. week, was its um, m- somewhat unanimous, partially divided opinion on Tuesday, um, reversing the district court and holding that Wikimedia Foundation does indeed have Article Three standing to bring a civil suit challenging. Uh, upstream collection under Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Bobby, I think this came as a surprise to a lot of folks because of the Supreme Court's 2013 ruling in Clapper versus Amnesty International. Which found in the context of a summary judgment motion, very important procedural posture detail, uh, that there was no standing in that case to go To bring out, a very similar challenge. Yeah, yeah Fourth Amendment type complaint about Section, Section 702, 702, which we've been talking about in this program. For a while. The, yeah, the, so what you've got here is these are attempts to put into a judicial forum the question of whether the Well, fourth, civil litigation. I mean, civil, it, right, it already yeah, comes yeah, right, up yeah, in the FISA court, already comes up to, in motion to, to set suppress. up in civil litigation the question of whether the Fourth Amendment is violated in some fashion or other by one or more aspects of the Section 702 program, which, as we've said before, targets non-U.S. persons outside the United States, but in various ways, nonetheless, will pick up some amount of U.S. person communications. So far, that's not been litigated in civil civil court, uh, in part because of uh, the difficulty of showing you have someone who has standing, right. someone whose communications have been captured in this way. And it looked like after Clapper, many people kind of overread it and said, oh, so you could never litigate this. It has to only come up maybe as a criminal defendant's, uh, you know, Motion to suppress. Or adversarial litigation in the FISA court. Right. And so, Steve, give us the panel opinion of the Fourth Circuit in the Wikimedia case. It obviously did not have the power to and did not purport to say that Clapper was wrongly decided. It distinguished it and put huge weight on the procedural posture. Yep. So there, there are two big grounds for distinction. And, Bobby, I think there's a third that they didn't say but that we ought to. Um, so the two huge grounds for distinction. First, you already mentioned 
when the Clapper case got to the Supreme Court, it was on summary judgment, right? For the non-lawyers out there, what that means is that the parties had already had an opportunity to at least adduce some evidence tending to substantiate their allegations, right? It wasn't just, here's what we're alleging in the complaint. It's, here, what can you prove? Right. Your allegations drop out at that point. What matters is, do, from the things where you've got the burden of proof, do you have enough to create a triable issue of fact, as I say? And if you don't have right. the goods— Or to prevail as a matter of law. Yeah, then, then, the, then the law can be applied to the undisputed right. facts. And so at that point, right, Justice Alito says the plaintiffs had not provided enough evidence to show the collection of their communications and therefore injury was, in Justice Alito's words, quote, certainly impending. Right. So they didn't have the evidence to show that they'd really been collected. Right. Um, well, but also— Or we're about to be collected. We're about to be, right? I mean, yeah, because, yeah. So this is the other thing, right, that it was a future injury, not a— so, yeah. so, so Which in, introduces a whole other layer of speculation. Which we're going to get to. So, so the first big point was, unlike Clapper— Wikimedia comes up on a motion to dismiss. At the motion to dismiss stage, um, the court is supposed to take all plausible allegations in the complaint as true, whether or not, Bobby, they are, yeah. even if the court and indeed, knows better. draw indeed, draw inferences when possible in the favor of the plaintiff. On the, plaintiff. Th- on the theory that the motion to dismiss asks, even if everything is as the plaintiff says it is, do they still lose? Right, because it's an efficiency mechanism. You want to throw the case out at the doorstep if, if even there's no if, way the plaintiff Even wins. if they somehow get wildly lucky and prove everything, if they would still lose as a matter of law, then we don't want to move ahead to the discovery phase Precisely. when everyone has to start putting forward uh, evidence. And the reason why that's a big deal is because Wikimedia's lawyers, to wit the ACLU, yeah, right? This is, this is really ACLU versus the government. Of course it is. And they know what they're doing, right? Yeah. And so they, you know, they made a ton of very specific allegations um, that, Bobby, we should say, were enormous enormously aided by everything we've learned about Section 702 collection since Clapper. Let's keep in mind, Clapper was decided on February 26, 2013, right? Still three and a half months before the first Snowden disclosures. Now we're all the way through the Snowden period. Now we've had the additional, you know, the PCLOB report, the declassifications, right? All the stuff about it. Lots of detail and understanding out there, including the ways in which no, but, but what matters is, was there amongst the clients of the ACLU here, was there someone who had an allegation about themselves suggesting that they'd already been collected right. on or where collection would be imminent? And the court thought taking all the facts as alleged as true at this threshold stage, unlike summary judgment, no requirement that they actually prove anything yet. Right. They thought, yeah, at least Wikimedia, not the others, but Wikimedia – they look like they might have been collected. It's right. It's plausible, right? It's plausible to allege based on the volume of international and overseas communications in which you engage on a daily basis that at least some of your communications were collected through upstream. Right. Um, And and so just to be clear, this does not mean that they will survive the summary judgment stage if and when it gets to that. And indeed, as we're about to talk about, it's not at all clear they're going to get to that stage. Right. So the, so so I, let me just say, before we get to that, I mean, so the court did divide slightly as to the other plaintiffs in the case who had a more sort of generalized dragnet-based allegation mm-hmm. that 702 was actually collecting everything, almost everything, yeah. and that therefore they were injured. And the the majority of the Fourth Circuit said, actually, we think that's still speculative under Clapper. Yep. Um, there was a concur- opinion concurring in the judgment in part, right, that said, actually, I would find standing for these plaintiffs as well. That's, I think, less important. Yep, I agree. Um, but, but I want the, the, the second, we said there are two grounds of distinction. The second one, Bobby, is, is subtle but important. In Clapper, because that case was filed the day 702 went into effect or the day after, it was a challenge to an alleged future injury, right? In Wikimedia, mm-hmm. the claim is that this is past and ongoing injuries. And mm-hmm. so there's a slightly different standing question. Because as long as you yeah. allege, right, for a future injury, you have to allege that something right. will happen. Right. 
right? For a prior or current injury, you have to allege something has happened. And so for, depending on your point of view, this is either easier or less easy. It's it's less speculative in that you're asserting, no, it has happened. But on the other hand, it comes what comes with that is, all right, and then before you're ever going to see uh, a remedy, you're going to have to prove that that actually is true. That's And that leads to why I think we both agree they have a huge hurdle looming over them. But before we get to that, you said there was a third distinction? Um, oh, no. I, just, the, I think the subtle one is just uh, what the difference in mindset after Snowden. Oh, just right? the that, Yeah, just, this right, comes up at a different point in time. Where, where, where we're not nearly as, I think, trusting, right? And not nearly as as sort of sanguine about surveillance programs, right? Just... Just, it's, it's, it was easy for the Supreme Court and Clapper to sit back and say, this all seems wildly fantastic I to see. us. Yeah, and right? now, now there's more facts in the record, that's for sure. All right, so, so what is this this thing? There, There is a new hurdle that, of course, all the parties understand this is looming. I think this is going to kill this case. Although, well, so so I'm not sure we get there, right? Because now the question is, you know, so what does the government, does the government now just go to the district court and move on to discovery, at which point, Bobby, they would likely invoke the state secrets privilege. Good right? old state secrets Now, privilege. the state secrets privilege is actually two different things, Bobby, right? I mean, and so there's, eh, there's a lot of debate, but for our purposes, we don't need to just worry sure. about whether it's sure. two different right. aspects or what. As relevant here, I mean, right, everyone knows that upstream is a thing, right? So I don't mm-hmm. think we're talking about like the Totten litigation barring form of the state secrets, but this is more about like, are you allowed to discover particular pieces of evidence or will the government invoke state secrets with regard to specific discovery requests by the plaintiffs? So we should insert here a little mini, within the mini episode, yeah. a mini primer on the state secrets privilege in, in U.S. civil litigation. Unlike criminal litigation, but in civil litigation, if and, and this starts with discovery, if there's an effort to require production of testimony or documents or other things in the discovery process, the disclosure of which to the public would pose a risk to national security, the idea is there's a privilege that protects that information or that statement or that testimony or that document, much as would be the case if it was an attorney-client communication. That is to say, it doesn't really matter if the other side really needs it. It's privileged. And unless there's a waiver, it doesn't come in. Now, that sounds like at first blush, okay, so this is like an objection you'd raise to document request number 17 and maybe the fourth question of the of the, interroga- of the uh, interrogation, the deposition, <laughs> uh, Freudian slip of the Indeed. national security kind. Uh, the, it's not so simple, though, because over time there have been a lot of cases that have merged with what you were just describing as the Totten bar, the Totten right. doctrine, this idea that there are some, some topics – that are, that are so sensitive and secret that they just shouldn't be litigated. And then the question is whether by excluding enough specific pieces of evidence and enough specific topics, right, you have either, you have, you have altered the litigation in a way that is materially unfair um, to the defendant or, yeah, well, right, that materially precludes the plaintiff from actually making out their case. Right. And so it, in practice, a case like this, and I think this would be pretty much a paradigm case. It reminds me a lot of the sort of the, the 1970s NSA litigation, Halkin v. Helms. These are the kind of cases where at the end of the day, what, what Wikimedia would like to try to prove, they'd like to prove who is it that NSA has been collecting on, who are the targets, they'd like to get into this area. All this stuff is cl- sensitive, classified information. Some of it's been waived, and so it's out there, as right. you said a moment ago. Certainly not all of it. Certainly not the question of what communications were, in fact, picked up, except that, in some rare instances. Well, but that's the thing. And so, so, so again, I mean, we're talking about very sophisticated lawyers here, right, who, who are going to do their best to avoid state secrets. I mean, so— I just it, don't think they can. Well, I don't know. I, so I guess I'm a little more circumspect on the topic than you are, right? Because it seems to me that there isn't— that, 
The, the real state secrets question is whether any Wikimedia stuff specifically was collected, right? It seems like there are ways to answer that question even through redacted summaries, right, that might avoid... I, I don't know how, because I'm imagining sort of, I'm sure a lot of listeners are thinking, okay, so they got past motion to dismiss. Right. Isn't, you know, discovery request number one, interrogatory number one. Right. Does anywhere in your communication collection? Do you have any communication? Do you have it? I mean, that's that's the question, and the answer to that is we will not answer that on the grounds of the state secrets privilege. And I guess the question, and, and then the question is right whether the district court allows that claim or whether the district court requires the government to show that they can't produce some kind of unredacted alternative response. But if the case goes forward, if right. they had some kind of in-camera proceeding, some ex parte proceeding, right. and then the result of it was, okay, this case can go forward, you've acknowledged it. Well, I just don't see how they get around that. I guess the question is, is it really going to stun anybody that somewhere in the NSA's servers is a single communication involving Wikimedia? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. I guess, I don't know. I, but so, so it seems to me, Bobby, the big point is, right, if that's what happens, the focus shifts from a fight about standing, which of course is a doctrine that has lots of implications far beyond right. this unique space, to a focus on the state secrets privilege, which is much more yep. context specific, and I dare say context appropriate. And here only applied as to the seven, you know, to surveillance questions. Well, not just that, to and, and, we've, and, and even even more specifically, or actually more broadly, we've already had a, a decent amount of attempts to that's try right. to litigate various NSA programs. Yeah. It's, it's, it wouldn't be anything new under the sun to find out that this case goes so away. So that's why I think the last question I want to leave with, right, is so if you're the government, right, and you know that you've got this, you know, club in your bag, so to speak, the state secrets privilege, do you just go back to the district court or is the standing holding significant enough yeah. to you that you take that – I mean, I would say, you know, maybe to the full Fourth Circuit all the after today. Although, yeah, I was going to say, they're, uh, they're not in the right district anymore for but, that. But to take it to the Supreme Court. I mean, so so little known fact about the government's track record. In post-9-11 civil litigation against the government arising out of counterterrorism policies, the government has filed eight cert petitions. Bobby, I think you know what their track record is. They are batting 1,000. They are batting 1,000. Yeah. Um, right? The court, not only has the court taken all those cases, but you could argue that the, that—, that with some semantics, right? The government has basically gotten what it wanted in just about yeah. all of them. Well, so they're eight for eight, but I don't, I don't think that tells us that they, they could, that this is there for the taking. No, at no, all. no, no. Just, just that if the government wanted to take this to the Supreme Court, right? I, it would be interesting to see how the court would react to a, an effort to clarify what Clapper does and doesn't say about Article Three standing doctrine. Yeah, that's right. Here, I think they might be a little more skittish than with our first topic maybe, earlier. Maybe, yeah. um, so, yeah, so my, my prediction is ultimately this case won't go to the merits. Um, and, and also, I think it yeah. actually hurts the plaintiffs in that we know that, first of all, we know that there's already a ton of political ferment in Congress about well, whether the there's a Fourth Amendment problem, yep. right? The reauthorization is looming. This we, is also have, we also have the recent about disclosures, which, you know, you could yep. argue go at least and, some ways towards mitigating. And they've removed about collection. I think in these circumstances, I'm sure you agree, this is tailor-made for the court to decide the political process is, is on this one. We're going to wait and see. Yeah, although I don't know that that's a standing holding. Yeah, no, what I'm saying is, like, at the end of the day, this this case, one way or the other, just oh. isn't going to get that far. Um, We'll see. I mean, th then the question is, right, do the 702 reforms moot it, right, before we have Especially to if Wikimedia's complaint is about past collection in a regime that just is that's, about that's, to be changed. Which is what happened to ACLU in the foreign I think records that's program. what's going to happen here. So we'll see. Yep. Um, so, Bobby, before we sign off from our increasingly less mini episode, <laughs> you want to say a bit about you, you just came back from from Houston, where apparently you were at a, a U2 concert. Yes, this is the most wonderful thing, Steve. It's it's an anniversary tour celebrating the Joshua Tree, and I can't even bring myself to say how many years it's been. 
then. But it's it's, it's been a, a long time. It's been <laughs> thirty years, uh, which strikes me as incredible. But it's one of these tours where the the idea is we're going to play the album. And I do mean album. We're going to play the album uh, side A, side B, front to back. Now, this is especially poignant uh, to have happening shortly after the, the horrific tragedy in Manchester. U2, U2 is not just a socially conscious band, but especially in songs like Sunday Blaze Sunday, yep. uh, being um, so rooted in, in Ireland. This is a band that's very sensitive to, over time, uh, issues of terrorism and violence. Uh, I saw them actually in New York shortly after 9-11. They came not too long after that, on the uh, All You Can't Leave Behind tour. And it was an incredibly emotional concert. There was a, Bono talked a lot at that concert about how he had got into the city the day before, went straight to some fire department right. local. Didn't they play at, at, the, at the Super Bowl in 2002, right? They played Where the Streets Have No Name. And they had that banner of all the people who died on 9-11. So, and they, they'd done, they, uh, inside Continental Airlines Arena in New Jersey, the, at that show, because I couldn't get into the garden for, for that one. Um, ah, the Meadowlands. So we're over in the Meadowlands. And when they came off the encore and they, they played uh, All That You Can't Leave Behind, which is a song that builds to a pretty strong emotional pitch at the end. And they started uh, displaying the names, the scrolling names of all the victims um, on the crowd. It was just broadcast on all of us. And it was absolutely, you know, everybody was crying at the time. It was really powerful. Uh, it wasn't like that, you know, at all, in part because obviously this was a concert in Houston. It was, it was right. removed from the, the time scene of the tragedy dramatically. It was closer in time, yeah. much further in space, but there was a lot of talk. They came out, and maybe they're doing it this way for all their shows, but there's, there's a main stage sort of at one end zone. Then there's a big floor area. There's a kind of a catwalk going out to a middle mini stage where they had a, a second setup. So they came out one time. Uh, first, uh, Larry Mullen Jr. comes out. She walks out to the drums, and he just starts ripping into the opening drums of uh, Sunday by Sunday. And the crowd goes crazy. And then the edge comes out, and he's halfway down the stage. He starts plowing into the opening uh, the notes. And then Bono comes out, and Adam Clayton, they all start playing it. And uh, there, he did work uh, a lyric about Manchester, Manchester Tears, into the song. Really powerful, one of my all-time favorites. And uh, they did a three-song opening set. They did Sunday Blaze Sunday, New Year's Day, and then Pride in the Name of Love as the opener. Then they walked back up to the real main stage, and they played Joshua Tree front to back. It was pretty That's badass. Pretty cool. All right. Well, that's all I had to say about that. Um, well, at least it takes your at least it takes your mind off of the the Spurs not quite making it to seven. The, the, uh, what what what? Did my predictions not? Shockingly, my predictions did not come through. There. We went from Spurs in six to Spurs in seven to Spurs in Florida. Spurs in in twenty eighteen. Spurs in twenty eighteen. Good luck with that. <laughs> all right. So on that note, Bobby, we're going to sign off uh, from our not as many as we had initially planned episode twenty. Yep. Stay safe out there, everybody. Adios.